Hello, everybody. This is Andrew Roger Carson opening the show this week for Partywood, episode 32, featuring Brian Krause, who will be with us a little bit later on. Now, you may be wondering, hang on a minute, this is a bit out of the ordinary. Usually, Steve Hester opens the show. Well, unfortunately, he is on the co-host duty, where he is basically not up to starting the show. And why is that, Steve? I've been relegated. Um not through choice. Uh, I have, on Friday, I tested positive for the COVID-19. Ooh. That's typical Steve fashion, doing it late. Yes. Uh, I, yes. It, it was fashionable last year, and I'm only doing it now. You know, it, It's like know. Instagram. It's like getting the Black Friday sale of last year's stock of COVID. <laughs> and you bit, bought yeah. it all up, baby. You bought it all up. But yes, uh, I think it goes without saying, we're all behind you, Steve. We know you're going to pull through. You'll be fine, uh, just in time for Christmas. Yeah, you're all behind me because you know that if you're in front of me, I'll end up coughing on you. This is very true. Yeah. So we're, we're behind you at arm's length. <laughs> in a <laughs> Pointing your face in the opposite direction. Cough that way. Into yes. Salford, where you probably got it from. <sighs> Oh, I know exactly where I actually got it from. I got it from my girlfriend's youngest, um, youngest daughter. It's it's going to go around the house eventually now, so let's just bring it all on and yeah. Hey, herd immunity. I've just got plain old boring COVID. It's not the the Unicron variant, you know. It's not the Planet Eater. <laughs> no. Well, the best thing is, is you can just uh, rest up and edit all of these final episodes that we've got coming up. Yeah, but uh, you wouldn't believe we're, we're about to end 2021, but instead we're going to go back to 2001, A Space mm. Odyssey, which is what Steve got from What's in the Box last week. Yes, yes, I did. Stanley Kubrick's 1968. Wow. Yeah. God, that's old. 1968 movie, 2001 Space Odyssey, which is pretty much nowadays considered the the, the sacred calf of science fiction. Yes. Um, and watching it, you can see why there's definitely a lot of a lot of headiness going on there. Looking at you know where we came from and where we possibly would be going to and. There's all kinds of moments in there that you look at it and you think, wow, I can definitely see where George Lucas got some of his inspiration from. Oh, yeah. Um, I can see where this sci-fi pulled that particular image from or or this, that, and the other. And it's one of those movies, just like with Taxi Driver, that has been pastiched and parodied and paid homage to in one way or another for the better part of, what, the last 50 years or so. Yeah. I mean, this predates the actual moon landings by a, <laughs> which, by a good year. Which is year. even more incredible. Yeah. So there's tons of stuff in there which, in terms of visual effects, looks great. However, and this isn't going to win me any followers um, and probably see me ostracized from any kind of Hollywood party in the future, I feel the need to slaughter this sacred calf oof oof indeed you're starting on the wrong foot this week steve this is dangerous territory i am all the sympathy that i got up from my covid uh, positive result is now just going to get washed away the fact of the matter is 
that while I'm sure this was insanely influential at the time, what you effectively have is a two and a half hour long music video for Stanley Kubrick's favorite classical musical hits and one of the slowest pieces of sci-fi. Like your delivery, basically, this week. Ever. It really is. I mean, the the opening, there's like two and a half, three minutes of just a black screen at the very beginning with just an atonal noise on over the top of it. And I think there's, out of the, the entire runtime of the movie, there's only probably about 40 minutes of worth of scenes which actually have any kind of dialogue in them. Everything is so slow and ponderous. And I, I absolutely recognize the need for uh, building up suspense and pacing and uh, sometimes you don't need dialogue in order to be able to sell a scene i understand that totally but everything is just so slow and self-indulgent and it it just feels like and i'm gonna have to bleep this out it just feels like kubrick onto the screen look at me, look how good I am, I can make this movie, oh, aren't I great, oh, wonderful, yes. You mean kind of like the way Christopher Nolan does now? Yeah, yeah, it's a, what is it, it's a, it's a shit in the can, you know, there's, 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 oh, oh, Steve, I'm going to spare you. (laughs) No, 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 it's it's a tampon in a teacup. Oh. I can I can see how this has influenced countless generations of sci-fi makers and fantasists, and it had the the brain of Arthur C. Clarke behind it as well, who basically foretold the entirety of modern technology. But in terms of an actually enjoyable movie, it's just no, no. I thought it was long, it was boring, it was so slow and badly paced. And even when it actually got to the point where you've got the famous scene where they're trying to shut down Hal and he's taking over the ship, I was just accompanied by uh, accompanied by Stanley Kubrick's own breathing. Yeah, Steve, go on. Tell me where I'm wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying you're not right. (laughs) You 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 are basically tearing pages out of the movie Bible and wiping your ass with it. I'm sorry, I am. Look, you, you, my whole purpose on the show is to be the everyman who comes in yeah. and sees a movie and just says what he feels. Now, I'm not a movie scholar. I'm not as well-educated in films as you are. I just watch a film and go, did I enjoy this? Did I not? It's simple. I didn't go to movie school. I can't break things down that well. I just watch a movie and think, did this work for me as a film? Yes or no? Didn't work for me as a movie. I'm sorry. Where were you thinking it's longer? Did you know that the total footage shot was 200 times the final length of the film? It felt like that watching it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I mean, it really you're, did. You're, here, you're watching Kubrick. This is the guy who's done uh, A Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, Eyes mm-hmm. Wide Shut, which you watched for the first time yeah. uh, the other week. Um, I guess you would have been one of the, uh, well, I guess you would have been the 242nd person who walked out of the premiere. Probably right arm in arm with Rock Hudson. 
Well, probably yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've seen I've seen a number of Cubics films, and uh, Eyes Wide Shut and this has added to that. You know, I think I thought Doctor Strangelove was brilliant, and uh, I even said uh, that the first half of Full Metal Jacket, brilliant, absolutely intoxicating. Less said about the second half, the better. We've been over that. <laughs> um, the Shining. I know Stephen King hated it, but I thought there was a great movie. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant. But this, just for me, just didn't work. I've seen better paced sci-fi. I've seen more interesting sci-fi. I've seen almost equally indulgent sci-fi like Blade Runner. That's quite self-indulgent at times as well. Yet it still manages to be appealing and tense. And uh, uh. You sound like one of those executives at MGM who was practically prepared to pull the movie on release because they thought it was a just a dud. But it was actually the theatre owners who told them that, no, hang on a minute, stoners are coming to watch this movie and they're absolutely loving it. And they're turning out in droves. I'm not surprised at the end. Like about the <laughs> last, what, the last half hour of the movie is just one great big acid trip. Yeah, and, and the first 25 minutes of the movie is completely dialogue-free. Yeah, made up of some terrible makeup effects. In the day, they were cutting edge. Come on. It was like about the year before um, Planet of the Apes or something, wasn't it? Yeah, probably. It was something like that. It wasn't that far off. But, I mean, what you're looking at here, I mean, these are classic. They were the greatest effects in film history. I I think they still hang up. When you kind of look at them through the time capsule of, like, when they were made, which predates when we were even born, yeah. Right. Predate Star Wars and everything. They are the greatest effects in film history. The cinematography, I think, is amazing. And I love the music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I love the music uh, I, apart from that atonal <laughs> stuff which goes on for half an hour at a time. Ridian, <laughs> have yeah. you entered the room? I've got to agree with you about the special effects, though. Some of the special yeah. effects work in that. It's just it, superb. Do you know the sad thing about it is all of those ships were found in uh, basically a dump around the corner of the actual studio. Really? They were left out there for decades, all of those ships. Some of them went onto proper ruin. They were just dumped there on the studio lot. And they just How weren't thrown away for decades. Yeah, they were just dumped. Some people actually found uh, some of the um, the pieces of them, uh, like the the... Big wheel style ship. I don't know what the thing like centrifuge type ship. Like uh, they found station. that out in a yard. Yeah, the space station. So they found that actually, and they got a picture of it, and it was like properly worn away, but it was still you know recognizable. Huh. So uh, not a fan of two thousand one space odyssey then. No, no, no. It's um, I can see why it's influential, and without that, a lot of the sci fi that came after it either wouldn't exist or would have been a lot poorer because of it. Uh, but for me, it's kind of like the Beatles, you know, it was fine for the time, but the things have come along and done it far better afterwards. <laughs> and on that note, I, don't I think care we need to go. Into... <laughs> yeah. I think we need to get into some anniversaries on something lighter and more up your alley. Who were? Watch them again, all of the time, or we get them on Prime for free. But we only know how old they are when we learn their anniversary.
Well, we did have a very good listenership. <laughs> we and did. And if you're still with us, <laughs> if those people in the industry are still listening to us, you probably won't be after we start these anniversaries. There's probably uh, because... people out there that are listening that thought, oh, I'm glad that he had the balls to say it. <laughs> yes, didn't want to get ostracised from uh, the the film loving community. Okay, well let's let's notch things up a bit because we are in the Christmas period. So naturally, you're going to think the anniversaries are kind of Christmas orientated, but they're definitely family orientated. And I'm sure that you've seen probably most of these, Steve. So let's start. Twenty five years ago this week, Jingle All the Way was released. <laughs> Dorbo Dime. Yes, the movie that was directed by Brian Levant with uh, the credit of the Flintstones on his CV, which could have said probably quite a lot. And mm. uh, then again, he did go on to make more films later on in life. Uh, he did. I know he kind of got ostracized from the filmmaking community for a jingle all the way, but he did actually go on to make uh, a Jackie Chan movie called The Spy Next Door. I think it was only about 10 years ago, something like that. Yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, but uh, this is the movie, obviously, where Arnold Schwarzenegger has to find a Turbo Man toy for his son during Christmas, uh, where he is chased by a postman, played by Simbad, who was actually originally supposed to be Joe Pesci. That makes sense. It it would make sense, yeah. He was the original choice, but then uh, apparently, because Joe Pesci is really small in comparison to Arnold Schwarzenegger, they didn't want to make it like a Danny DeVito-style situation because every comedy that Arnie had done at that point was with Danny DeVito. I would love to have seen that Joe Pesci just coming up to Schwarzenegger's belt line and still still (laughs) acting the the little angry man. Well, you got a toy? Well, you got a toy? Does that toy amuse you? <laughs> if I'm right, isn't the the boy, isn't his son played by Haley Joel Osment? No. Funnily enough, it's Jake Lloyd. And you should know That's that. That's it. I knew it was someone that was in a big film that were, came out around about 2000. Yes. Yes, The Phantom Menace. The original Anakin. Yeah. The, the thing about Jingle All The Way, it's... Uh, a joke family movie based around a very real life kind of craze that happened uh, in the 80s with the Cabbage Patch Dolls. And then in 1996, the year the movie was released, funnily enough, the exact same thing started happening with uh, the Elmo craze when everyone was after a Tickle Me Elmo and yeah. fights were breaking out in the stores. It's like Black Friday to the extreme. Have you ever had your ass kicked over an Elmo? Jesus, imagine having that. Elmo say go to hospital. I mean, it's a fairly disturbing movie, actually. I watched it again just recently because it's on Disney+. And uh, I never realised like how sinister it is when there's male bombs in the movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it was the, the innocent time of the 1990s where you could get away with stuff like that. Yeah, when postal bombs were considered uh, comedy. Um, but also you've got little cameos from... Uh, Jim Belushi uh, is in there as a Santa Claus trying to sell him a, a, a knockoff version of Turbo Man, who also has not only a tiny little elf played by Vern Troyer, but also has a gigantic Santa played by the big show himself, Paul White. Which, oh, which is yes, nuts you're absolutely about. right. Yeah, for some reason yeah. I was thinking Tiny Lister again. Yeah. And um one of the, the greatest things about this that I only realized in watching it the other day, 
there's the scene where Arnie gets picked up in like a tow truck yeah. and uh, he gets dropped off somewhere. And I looked at the female driver and I was like, she looks really familiar. And then I Googled her. And for, so funnily enough, the actress who was driving the tow truck was the first Sarah Connor in the Terminator that he shot. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, that, that's just an interesting little bit of trivia that would go over the heads of most people. Oh, my uh, God. That's but yeah, great. Jingle All The Way, it's it's just calm. It's it's just one of those Christmas movies that's really inoffensive now. At the time, it was like this huge like disappointment, and it became the butt of so many jokes because it was, well, it was Jingle All The Way. And over the years, it's kind of gained a bit of a cult following to the point where it's now really acceptable to kind of really like this movie. I guess it's the kids who have grown up when they saw Jingle All The Way when they were kids, and now they've just got a bit of warm feeling about the movie yeah and a bit not when so i watched it it was like uh, arnie is you know arnie is arnie and he proper arnie's this movie and sinbad wasn't bad in it either you know uh, i've got to admit it's one of those films that is kind of inoffensive now yeah i've got nothing really else to add to that i think that's pretty much it in a nutshell it is one of the the arnie comedies of the 90s it's not particularly fantastic but it still has that kind of weird warm spot where you know you shouldn't actually like it, but you kind of find yourself enjoying it anyway. Yeah, you know, you're going to watch it at some point this Christmas, right? Because it's there, and you're going to run out of all the other Christmas movies and all those shitty Hallmark movies with the the sweater brigade and where the girls always seemingly wearing red top. (laughs) You know, and, and Jingle All The Way is there, and you'll have a bit of fun with it. You know, that's Christmas for you. Yeah. Uh, can you believe, Steve? Yes. 15 years ago this week, Happy Feet was released. Oh, the strangely it's strangely dark Penguin movie, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'd give it that. But considering it was directed by George Miller, who directed all those Mad Max movies, I'm not surprised. That is such a weird choice of director. Well, he actually directed Babe as well. Which is also pretty dark when his mum's getting like taken away to become bacon. I know. I mean, what's what next is going to happen? Oh yeah, we're gonna we've got a reboot of Bambi directed by Toby Hooper. <laughs> like, uh, that'd be interesting, seeing as though Toby Hooper's no longer with us. Yeah, but but, um, but but I wouldn't put it past it. It is Hollywood after all. Um, they'll make him digital. There's some strange little things about Happy Feet here, and I know that the movie gets a lot of hate from people. Right, <laughs> and it gets mocked quite a lot, and I don't know where that hate comes from because I actually think it's a really nice little movie, uh, and I like it. But there's some interesting things here. I mean, this was the best animated movie Oscar winner, really. You know, for one, so it's an Oscar-winning movie for best animated movie, and on top of that, <laughs> I wonder. I always wonder how Nicole Kidman feels about this movie, considering. It is the highest grossing film in Nicole Kidman's entire career. <laughs> I bet Can you imagine said, that? She's probably at home thinking, that won all the money and I didn't even have to take my clothes off for it. <laughs> if she's listening, somehow listening to the show, she's going to be going through her entire season. That cannot be right. That cannot be right. Days of Thunder must have made more than this. Oh, shit. No, Happy Feet actually did make the most money of my career. And it was also Steve Irwin's last movie. I'd forgotten he was even in it. Yeah, yeah, he had a small role, in, and he unfortunately passed on. And also, Brittany Murphy also passed on. 
not long after this movie came out, which is why she was replaced in the second one with a different actress. Mm. Um, but the strangest thing I always find about this movie is all of the dancers who were kind of motion captured for it had to go to penguin school. Did they also have to wear those kind of dead low crotch pants like Dick Van Dyke wore in the dance sequence in Mary Poppins? <laughs> That'd be interesting if they did. There must be footage somewhere. Must it might be. be worth getting the DVD just so you can actually see the special features to see if they went there. Yeah, so Happy Feet is 15 years old this week. Feels longer for some reason. Anyway, what have you got next? Okay, can you believe, Steve, 10 years ago this week, Puss in Boots, Boots. was released. I haven't seen this one. You haven't? Oh. I haven't seen this one, no. I've seen the other Shrek movies, I've just not seen this one. Well, I'm going to tell you, I, I think this is awesome. I love Puss in Boots, right, which is surprisingly, because it's director Chris Miller, the only other thing that he directed prior to this was Shrek the Third, admittedly not the standout Shrek movie from all of them, in my view. Is that Miller as in Lord and Miller? Chris Miller, yeah, yeah you know what? It might be. Or, or is I that another Miller? Oh, oh, is it the Chris Miller who did Surf's Up, I wonder? I That was Chris Miller as well, wasn't it? Don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, did, I didn't even look into the research on that. But I can you tell you who he is, though. Did you know that Chris Miller actually also voices Kowalski in The Penguins of Madagascar? Right. I'm going to have to look into this. You are going to have to look into this. Uh, The thing about Puss in Boots, uh, amazingly, something that I didn't know, this movie took seven and a half years in development. Why so long? Well, the character debuted in Shrek 2, which Uh was 2004, which is kind of weird because Puss, 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 Puss in Boots. There you go. Sean Connery Connery is brought in again. Uh, Puss in Boots is the only character from the Shrekiverse, I guess you call it, to get a movie of his own. Well, the only movie that can be shown to children. The Donkey Dragon workout video, that was strictly adults only. <laughs> as, as well as Take My Gum Drop Buttons by the Jim <laughs> Hey, we got the laugh out of you. Don't make um, me laugh, please. Don't make well, me laugh right now. Yeah, Puss in Boots. I actually love it, and you should you should actually watch it. Actually, it'll, it'll make it'll cheer you up over the Christmas period. And the movie does actually have two records to its name. One, it is the highest-grossing Halloween weekend opening of all time. Okay, now that's a very strange time to release a kids' movie. It is, and it knocked off Saw Three, which was the previous record holder. <laughs> Jesus, I I reckon more kids probably went to see Saw Three, but. <laughs> Unfortunately, it also has another record, uh, which is for the smallest non-holiday second weekend drop for a film in a saturated release of 2,500 theatres. So that means it's also the fastest dropping movie on a second weekend. Well, do you know what the do you know what the actual uh, figures were? Or no, no, that, that, that's talking money, and I don't have any. So it's yes, it's even more depressing, but. Put it in this, Puss in Boots is a brilliant movie. I really love it. Antonio Banderas is great as Puss in Boots. You know, you can tell just his voice. He is loving this. It is basically his his take back to Zorro, because it is a pure riff on Zorro. Yeah, it's it's one you should watch over the holiday period. It'll cheer you up. 
I probably will do. The kids are currently going through a thing of rewatching Mitchells versus the Machines, twenty four seven on repeat. So uh, nice. Eventually, when they get past that, we'll put Puss in Boots on. Having kids is a joy, aren't they? Oh, they all right. Um, so for our last one, I know this is one you want to talk about. Go on. Let's talk thirty years ago this week. Hot Shots was released. Oh yay! Yay! Directed by Jim Abrams, not David. Not David Zucker. Steve. Yes, <laughs> Jim Abrams directed it, but Jim Abrams did direct on Airplane and Top Secret and uh, yeah. Police Squad as well. Um, so he was the member of Zaz, uh, along with David and Jerry. And it was funny kind of doing the research for this because I actually went to the cinema to see this when it came out and remember that pretty much Sky Movies had ruined pretty much every good joke in the movie by showing it on previews for like a whole month. So it didn't feel like I had seen anything new when I did go to see it. I hate it when movies yeah. get ruined like that. I really do. There's no need. No. Especially if it's the movie studio that's putting out spoilers in the trailer. Yeah. Or all and the I, good jokes. Stop that. I'm not going to spoil it here, but Warner Brothers put out the theatrical trailer for the 1998 movie The Negotiator with uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Kevin Spacey. And uh, if you watch that trailer, I'm not going to say... But the very last line gives away one of the major things of the entire movie. It's like, why did you just tack that on there? Right. Why? You've just given away one of the biggest plot twists of the entire movie in one line. But if you want to go and look at it, that's your choice. I have not ruined it for you. No. But Hot Shots, apart from starring uh, our good man Charlie, uh, really knocking it out of the park. Uh, and really establishing himself in comedy for, I think, the first time. This was kind of his first foray into this kind of comedy. Was this before or after Loaded Weapon? This was, this was before, before, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. this was before. And Loaded Weapon was before Hot Shots Part Yeah. The one thing that really interested me from learning about Hot Shots again this week is that this movie was chosen as the royal film performance attended by the Queen. Yes, I remember (laughs) hearing that. I think it was on film... What what year did this come out? 91. 91. Jesus Christ, I feel old. 91, yeah. I think I remember seeing it on film. It would be film 91 with Barry Norman. (laughs) And I remember distinctly there being a whole segment about the queen going to see this <laughs> taking madge to see hot shots yes Jeez. i wonder what point would it be like what am i doing watching this movie is it the scene where charlie sheen is basically getting ready to put a hot dog into valera galino in front of a fridge <laughs> you know there must be a scene in the moment where Jim Abrams or whoever was on Charlie and whoever was sat there thinking, oh shit, the Queen's about to see this. No, the Queen's probably <laughs> watching it going, no, it takes me back. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, um, what a bizarre movie for um, the uh, the role performance because the Adams family was out that year. I thought that would have at least been a more suitable again, kind of macabre as yeah. well. It's suitable. But there's, there's some jokes in Hot Shots that are you know, extremely risky yeah. to put on in front of Madge. I'm putty you know, in your hands, in my hands. I wish it could have been the original first Naked Gun movie where Leslie Nielsen is suddenly straddling the Queen across the table. Oh. That would have been <laughs> that would have been a genius moment for the royal premiere. I think David would have 
loved that to happen. Especially after the scene where she where he did sexual assault with a concrete dildo. <laughs> <laughs> that would just be oh. the icing on the cake then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know the strange thing about Hot Shots is Lloyd Bridges' character originally um they were looking at doing it with Leslie Nielsen and I think Jim Abrams was like, you know, we've got to stop making movies with you, which is an interesting side. It might be misquoted, but basically they turned down Leslie Nielsen for Hot Shots to play the Lloyd Bridges role. And uh, the same year, he ended up doing The Naked Gun two and a half anyway. Yeah. Now, Lloyd Bridges is great in it. He has some absolutely diamond lines in it. Oh, yeah. It's just like when he did Airplane. He just properly steers into the skid on the mall, doesn't he? Yeah. You find it extremely weird that there's three cast members from Two and a Half Men in this movie. Men. Yes. Obviously, you've got Charlie yeah. Sheen. John Cry is in the movie. Yeah. And then playing Charlie Sheen's dad is Ryan Stiles. Yeah. He's also in there as well. He was in the second one as well. <laughs> yes, the demolitions expert. Yeah. I'm looking forward to blowing something up for you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's, he's great, Ryan Stiles. Oh, what an yeah. amazing guy. He's so funny. Uh, so yes, uh, that is our anniversaries for this week. Oh, that's awesome! I'm actually quite surprised that I've seen three out of those four movies. I know Puss in Boots being the one you haven't, which uh, you you will have to rectify this holiday period. Yes, indeed, I will. Well, I think uh, we've waited long enough to get our guest in. I know you've been suffering, so we'll kind of jump in our little time machine back to when I was feeling like shit, <laughs> you were feeling absolutely fine. From what I hear, it's come out okay, so I guess we'll have to find yes. out. So. Let's go bring our guest in. Well, today I invited an American actor with a lot of history ever since making his screen debut in 1989. And apparently a lot of rabid female fans, as I found out on Facebook, since we announced he was coming on. Now, over his career, he has appeared in Return to the Blue Lagoon, Stephen King adaptations, Earth Angel with our previous guest, Tommy Hinckley. He says hi, by the way. A Smokey and the Bandit series even I never knew about, which I found out this morning. <laughs> and most famously, the role of Leo Wyatt in the series Charmed. Cue screaming girls everywhere. <laughs> now, usually, we travel all over the world to talk with our guests. But our guest this week decided to come to us. Well, he came to London. He's shortly headed to Telford as part of the Wales Comic Con, which sounds like Salford, but he'd still probably have his wallet there. Mm. So, still rocking up movie and TV roles and loving his appearances at cons the world over, it's a pleasure to introduce Brian Krause to Pottywood this week. Good afternoon, Brian. Good afternoon. Ah, thanks for having me on. <laughs> <laughs> he brings his own fanfare. That's does. We need to have like we need to have a, a button of uh, a horde of screaming female fans that I just keep pressing. And he just comes in and out every five minutes. Yes, I bet you'd have the police on your door in five seconds. Probably would, yeah. <laughs> well, Brian, seeing as you're adjusting to our shitty climate right now and your body's either in complete shock or homesick, how is uh, the con looking for this weekend? And do you know who they've put you next to at it yet? Con's looking great. I'm excited to get to Wales uh, and, and, and get the party on. I, I know I'll be next to uh, Holly Marie Combs who played uh, my wife on the show Charmed. Cool. Um, awesome. Beyond that, maybe Charisma Carpenter, I, I'm hoping. Um, I don't know. And Sean Astin's going to be there. So it's always great to see him. And he's <gasps> such a wonderful Gemji. human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good, old, good old Samwise. 
Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell that I like Lord of the Rings? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, you're, you're just made for the day now. A Lord of the Rings reference has crept into our show. Oh, I am. I am. It's brilliant. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, we know you're looking forward to seeing your legions of fans, your acolytes. Um, but is there someone else there that you're also looking forward to meeting yourself? Uh, I mean, it's it's going to be exciting to meet Sean again. I'm, I'm going through the guest list now. It's like uh, James Marster. He's great. Let's see who else. Uh, there's Angus McInnes, who's uh, Star Wars and Vikings. Seems like a cool guy. Uh, Veronica Taylor. She's the voice of uh, Ash in uh, Pokemon. I, I gotta oh, get yes. her. I gotta get her to do the voice and leave a voicemail on my <laughs> my my answering machine. <laughs> my kid will love it. Uh, Have you ever had any like instances at a comic con where like a major like star or someone you've really liked has come up to you and just really like, oh my god, you know, you were thinking charmed. Have you ever had that? Not not so much like oh I've been a big fan. I mean there there have been a few wrestlers like really large human beings that have been like, man I grew up me and my mom watched your show and I'm, it's been kind of surprising. Um, but I've had quite a few that are just so humble and down to earth and nice and we wind up hanging out. Uh, you know Ricky Whittles one of them. Um, so many great people. Uh, that it's amazing when when you get actors outside of Hollywood and you know we're we're all kind of just humbled out and about and you you have fans coming up and talking to you and telling you how great you are it's fantastic uh, but it's it's also kind of emotional because you know you're 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 hearing from people why they need entertainment why they watch wrestlers why why you know they they sat down and maybe they went through something horrible with their family or whatever and this form of escapism has helped them through and I, I guess we all kind of have that in common where you kind of feel like a doctor you're helping people's lives so it's uh I, th I think the one that's most memorable is Mads Mikkelsen uh we were in Saudi Arabia and uh what a great actor and presence and he was just so humble and and talked to everybody and he actually went around and introduced himself to people and and I just thought that was so that's close yeah. It was amazing yeah. because for somebody who's kind of off, you know, you're not going to just go in and approach the guy. And, and for him to be the one to come forward and introduce himself, I thought was just fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's a very warm feeling, you know, yeah. just hearing people like that. And speaking about warmer, let's talk about <laughs> something warmer. You're, you're a uh, Southern California boy, originally from El Toro. Yes, sir. So uh, tell us about your family, a bit of history of yourself growing up. Well, I'm, I'm adopted. Uh, so was my brother. I was born two pounds, two and a half, like two and a half pounds. I was in the hospital for nine months and brought home, you know, to my adoptive parents then and grew up in a nice Orange County suburban home. And uh, my first love was uh, football, soccer, um, Good. through high school, and <laughs> I wanted to play professionally. And then in the 80s, there was no uh, national soccer team or MLS, as, as you would say. So the only goal for a soccer player in the 80s from the States was to try to play in Europe. And uh, after a year of 
university, I realized I'm not a world-class player. And uh, I should try this acting thing. Uh, so, <laughs> so uh, you know, basic American upbringing, small town America. I mean, I grew up pretty close to the ocean. And so we were always surfing and doing things like that. But uh, my grandparents lived out in Fresno, which is uh, kind of farm country. And every summer we would go vacation with them and kind of go live you know, off the grid and camp and fish and uh, kind of live this country life. So it was, it was a nice balance coming back and forth. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, when I pursued acting, I I was 45 minutes away from Hollywood. Uh, so it was, it was easy to get into classes and make the jump. And when I first started acting, you know, it was easy to kind of go home and stay humble with my friends from high school and what have you. Okay, then. What was it that originally turned you on to acting, then? So, in eighth grade, I guess I was uh, 14 or something like that. Um, it's a funny story. Uh, I was getting bullied. I was tiny. I was 105 pounds, maybe, and five foot seven. Like, I was a skinny little guy, and I actually, my nickname was Mouse by my brother's friends, uh, which is great. That's a great one to help you grow up with and become an actor. Uh, anyway, we were, we were all rushing in after PE, physical ed, and out there running, and all the big guys would push to the door to get back into the locker room, and the largest of them would be at the front, and everybody would push from the back, and I wouldn't. I would, <laughs> you know, stay away from the fray, and the big guy got pushed, he twists his ankle, he gets all pissed, he turns around and he's like, who pushed me? And the crowd just dispersed. And there I was in the back picking my nose, right? And he's like, Kraus, three o'clock, get the circle, I'm gonna kick your ass. I'm like, what? Like, here's, here's this guy, you know, six foot tall, 200 pounds already wanted to kick my ass and I'm like what happened like what did I do and he's all my friends are like dude you better run I'm like run like what did I do and so uh, yeah it was horrible and so I left that class I left early I his best friend was in one of my other classes and I realized like my life was in danger and so I needed to get out of that class so I started pretending to be sick so I could get out of school early so he wouldn't follow me out into the yard. I, ha I had about a mile to go on my bike where I pushed my tenor saxophone. So I wasn't moving very quickly to get away from this guy. And I certainly wasn't going into the circle for a fist fight with this guy. So I had to change classes and find a way that I could get into the woods to get home to avoid getting beat up. And, uh, you know, I pretended to be sick enough. And, and so... I had like four music classes, uh, jazz band, marching band, tutor to, so I, they wouldn't let me take any more music classes. And, and I was like, well, maybe I'll take another Spanish class. Like what can, what can I do to get out away from this guy? And, <laughs> and so I went to my counselor and I was like, well, anything on the perimeter, like looking at the map of the school. And I'm like, what's this one? It's got its own door. Like you could exit from the class in the back. And she's like, well, that's drama. And I'm like, drama. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> like, uh, it sounds take... like something from a sitcom. Yeah, I'm like, I'll take it. It has its own exit door. So I could park my bike there in the morning and then, you know, jump on my bike as soon as the bell rang and be in the woods and he'll never find me. 
So I did it, and I wound up. People are like, "You're good." I'm like, "Okay." And so, <laughs> I I I made it away from him. His his best friend was on my baseball team that summer, and now I can't even play baseball anymore. And so that kind of led me into more soccer. I wound up playing on a traveling team, and basically, I had to get out of El Toro. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, good lord. So that led me into acting in high school, and fortunately, this guy Jeff Kemp went to a different high school. And uh, but I had kind of caught the bug for acting, and people said I was doing well at it. And so my my mother wound up finding a an acting class uh, that was like, "Hey, you want to try this? You know, it's after school thing." And I said, "I I play sports. I'm not a drama guy." Okay, I'll try it. And uh, you know that led to getting auditions and then eventually booking a role and realizing I'm not a world-class athlete, uh, I might as well go for it. <laughs> well, at least you never got beat up in the end. That's the main thing. I didn't get beat up by Jeff Kemp. And I'll tell you a funny, quick story about that. So when I booked the return to the Blue Lagoon, I had been working out for months to get ready. And the night before I was set to fly out, I walked into this gas station and... It's one of those where you can walk in from two sides. And I opened the door and coming in across the way from the other door no. is Jeff Kemp. And now I'm, I'm 180 pounds and just feeling like an animal. And it's, you know, cue the Clint Eastwood music, right? And it's a stare down. And I'm like, dude, you want to go? Like, I'm like, I'm, I'm like ready to fight this guy. And he looked at me and I looked at him and I was like, gosh, do I say anything? And I just, I didn't, I walked, I got my water and I, I just kind of stood behind him like, what's up? And I, you know, I, I had this moment where I, I, I wanted to say, thank you. You know, thank you for being a bully. Thank you for pushing me. Do you realize what I'm doing tomorrow? This dream of mine. And because of you, you've set me on this path and. I mean, it would have been a smug thank you, right? But I kind of wanted to... It's interesting how life pushes us into different spots. And, uh, you know, I, I think bullying is a horrible thing. But in this case, it kind of pushed me to uh, find what I love. And uh, so I'm grateful for that, for sure. Yeah, and speaking of what you love, uh, word is... Uh, you're a bit of a handyman prior to being an actor. So if you're free this weekend, I've got some decking that needs doing. <laughs> Absolutely. No, not a problem. You know, as I think we've all, as actors, you, you have to do a million different jobs just to keep the dream alive. And, you know, I had friends that do a lot of construction. So for years, it seemed to be a way to stay busy and you can leave the job site and come back if you have an audition and... You know, as long as you don't cut any digits off, you're good to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, you weren't exactly uh, born into the industry like a lot of people are born into the industry. You you probably had to take up a lot of part-time jobs to make it as an actor. So what are some of the most interesting jobs that were supporting you whilst uh, you were getting yourself in roles? Well, I tell you, I think the one that helped me the most uh, was the first one, and I, I held the longest. And it was I was a bellman um, at a Marriott down in Newport Beach. Um, and it was one of those where... You know, as a bellman, you're checking people out or checking them in. And I think the most interesting part is when you check people out, you come up with your bell cart and you're like, hi, it's Brian for the bell desk, you know, and you walk into this room and it's an angry wife, an angry husband, screaming kids. And 
you need to put a smile on their face if you want to get $5 from them. So, you know, it, it really taught me how to walk into a room and read the room and, and come in with good positive energy, regardless of how their trip went. And I think, I think that really helped me the most as far as auditioning of just walking in a room and bringing the energy and not allowing the room to bring me down. You know, there's some crazy stories from there. And, and, and I think that was the one that helped me the most, but uh, beyond that, you know, I was a bartender uh, and then so much construction, crawling under homes. And we were retrofitting homes, actually, when I booked Charm, which was interesting. Uh, it was a, a passion at the same time. So you still love parts of the construction and drywall and stuff like that. But uh, you also sold some pies, didn't you? I did. So when, <laughs> you know... Uh, I had been working for years and done a few movies and then did a soap and got let go after six months and moved back to Los Angeles. And, you know, I had a one-year-old child and trying to pay the rent. And uh, I had like three different jobs at the time. And one of them was actually driving a pie truck. Uh, you go in at 10 o'clock at night, you load up your truck and you come back at like three, four in the morning and start making your deliveries. Uh, and then, you know, I'd go from there at 7 a.m. I'd go to the work site and you're sleeping three, four hours a night and just doing whatever you have to do to make it happen and support a child uh, and, and the family and keep the dream alive. And it, it was one of those times in my life where I'm like, what am I doing? You know, yeah. you're, cha you're chasing this dream, this crazy dream. You're, you're struggling. Money's not easy. And, you know, I'll never forget. I said to my ex-wife, uh, I don't know if I, how much longer I could do this. I think, you know, maybe I should go back to university and get a degree or sell real estate or something. And she was all pissed and <laughs> nothing new there. And she's like, you know, Brian, whatever you're going to do, just can do it. <laughs> and, that, you know, that's the, the kind of ex-wife you need. Uh, but, you know, the actor in me, I'm like, uh, you're supposed to tell me I'm wonderful and it's gonna work out. <laughs> what do you mean, just do it? You know, and that turned into this whole thing. But you know, as it went on, I was like, man, you know, she really just told me to kind of man up and put the work down and have some energy towards it. And uh, you know, I don't want to thank her necessarily, but <laughs> I mean, it's great advice for anybody going after a dream. Is that you know, you you just have to go forward with all all the passion and you know you're going to work crazy hours you're going to do crazy things but you know at the end of the day it's all worth it um because there's no other way it works out i mean ask your favorite athlete or doctor or anybody they you got to go to the greatest lengths to have the greatest rewards and um some people do just fall into it and uh I'm not bitter about their success. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think everybody has their own path, right? And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for everything I had to do to get where I'm at. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm, I'm beyond blessed to continue to work today. It's, it's, it's a fickle industry, and it's just a blessing every time I step on a set. Well, speaking of uh, of luck and chasing your passion, uh, in 1989, you land a few roles start your on-screen journey including tv 101 yes. uh the tv movie match point the series highway to heaven which to be honest i still cannot believe was still going at this point um and the series <laughs> i mean how long was it going for, for god's sake and the series <laughs> and jillian um what do you remember about this break-in year that really stood out to you 
Well, man, I you know it's it's amazing. I, I remember each one of those spe- so specifically. You know, in in '88, I got my SAG card through a commercial, and then I said, you know, maybe I'll take another year off of college and university and and go for it. I got my card within six months. Then I booked the TV 101, which is just a couple lines and met some friends. And uh, the greatest thing about Highway to Heaven, I had like two lines or three lines. And I'll never forget this little actor, someone else on the show was like, oh, you sit in this chair. And I, I had never really been on a set a couple times, right? And he was like, no, sit in this chair right here. Uh, you know, and it says Michael Landon and Victor French. I'm like, I don't think we're supposed to sit in there. Right, like those are their chairs. I think he's like, no, don't worry about it. They're on the set, and da, 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 da. you're allowed to sit there. And I'm like, huh, okay. And I sit in the chair. I'm in Michael Landon's chair, and he's like, oh, dude, you should get up. Here comes Michael Landon. I'm like, this guy's setting me up, right? <laughs> and sure enough, I'm now I'm panicking. And all of a sudden, Landon comes over and he puts his hand on my shoulder, and he's like, no, no, no. Sit down. You're okay there. It's all good. What's your name? Hey, Brian, welcome to the set. I know we got a scene in a couple minutes. Sit here, prepare, and I'll see you in a few minutes. Great to have you here. And I look over at this guy who was hoping it went the other direction. And his (laughs) mouth is open, and he can't believe it. And I can't believe it. And, uh, you know, I'll just never forget how gracious Michael Landon was, you know, as a superstar at that time. Um, Yeah. It, it was a, it was an amazing experience and you know i've been i've been fortunate to meet so many people and like i said with mads earlier it's some of the most successful people i've met are just so humble um and it's something that i try to keep in my life as well because i think success grants the humble with their wishes as opposed to you know those who come at it with expectation and uh, That's a great, it was it was yeah. It was proven through Landon for sure, um, and then yeah, t- uh, match point. You know, I grew up playing a lot of tennis, and I actually had a tennis audition for that one, and they wanted to see my backhand, which I was very proud of. <laughs> uh, but uh, my good friend uh, still calls me. My n- character name was Bad Bart. Uh, I just had a horrible attitude and a lot of ego, and uh, I was Bad Bart. So. <laughs> Uh, I worked with Nels Van Patten on that one and Kristen Dottillo. And it was kind of this, uh, Disney had relaunched the Mickey Mouse Club. Um, and it wasn't part of the Mickey Mouse Club, like that Justin Timberlake was on and Britney and all these people when it relaunched. Uh, we did like a, a series of movies that would show, I guess they showed 15 or 30 minutes every Tuesday and Thursday and so they ran like seven minute episodes for the the run and then that got me a guest recurring role on the Angelian show where I met my future manager that and kind of things just kind of took off from there. So it was it was a big year and you know all in between working as a bellman <laughs> doing my thing <laughs> and as a DJ we used to DJ weddings and parties and bar mitzvahs and uh, that was a whole another aspect of uh, staying out there and being able to talk to people and, you know, kind of not being afraid of being looked at, I suppose. Oh, also, in, in speaking of your manager there, I just want to say uh, a big thank you to L. Petruk. Yes. Who helped us put this together. I said I'd give her a shout out. Uh, L's fantastic. Because of- Hello. Hello. Hello, L. <laughs> <laughs> we hope we do you proud. <laughs> <laughs> So in uh, 1991, 
you appear as the male lead in Return to the Blue Lagoon alongside Mila Jojevic. So, uh, how were you approached on the role? Was it excitement that fueled you? I mean, the first movie was a somewhat hit, after all. Right. Um, and I had heard they were auditioning for this, and, you know, they had seen thousands of people. And so, you know, I had a, different friends that had already been in on it and auditioned for it. So when I went in, it was like, okay, you're just you're just another face. And I went in and did it and, you know, got a call back and that led to more callbacks. And um, apparently Holly Marie Combs was at one of the final callbacks as well, which is, you know, we talk about today, but I, I, I don't quite remember. Um, you know, and when I booked it, it was just like, you know, it was one of those, for me growing up, the, the Blue Lagoon was kind of the forbidden movie. You know, yeah. rate, it was rated R. Yeah. My mother, you know, you're not supposed to watch it. Uh, is it porn? And, you know, now I'm like, <laughs> I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, explaining that to my mother wasn't easy. But, uh, you know, when I booked it, it was it was great. I mean, it was a dream come true. I'm, I'm in a big studio movie and uh you know one of the things billy graham the director had said he goes you know brian was one of the only actors to come in who wasn't an actor you know he came in as this character he's like you know everybody comes in in their leather jackets and james dean look had a resurrection in the early 90s i think we all had a headshot that looked like that uh <laughs> but you know i just came in as a person and the, the role really required kind of no knowledge of today's world and very Kind of simple. And, you know, my intelligence level helped with that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he's just so vacant. <laughs> he's perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the real quote. Um, but it was a dream come true. You know, I had never really left home before. Uh, you know, always with parents or this, that. But never on my own. I was 21. And, you know, here I was going off to Fiji and... You know, something you can only look up on books. There was no kids. There was no internet yet. I had to buy a book and see what Fiji was about. Uh, so it was quite the adventure at 21 to go off on my own for three months and go film this movie that, for me, I was still just such a rookie. Um, it, it was... I'll, I'll never forget the experience. And if you ever get a chance to go to Fiji, the, the Fijian people are some of the best in the world. Um, they're just so kind and honest and open and... Just, yeah. just amazing. Just amazing. Well, the movie had a bit of a troubled production due to weather issues, and it was on an island that was only accessible by a weekly ferry with a tiny grass landing strip for small planes. Now, what do you remember about actually making the movie? Was it hell? Uh, for Mila and I, we, we were there for a month without filming, just kind of adapting to the environment. I had a gentleman, Timothea, who was kind of teaching me how to be an island boy. Uh, every day we'd go out in the water, we'd climb coconut trees. He'd teach me how to, you know, make fire, do these things and kind of live like a native to the island. Um, so as far as like production, there were some production problems in that first month, but we weren't even really working. Um, but in the summertime, you do get quite a bit of, the weather changes every 10 minutes from sun to rain to what have you. Um, but once we started going, it, it, it went well. We did have quite a few storms and different things like that. Uh, but it seems as though once we started it, it kind of, the gates opened up and we were able to finish fairly easily. Um, 
but yeah, that first month was was terrible for them. Uh, sets destroyed, um, some incredible storms. Our, our director had actually, if you if you go back, I know you probably won't watch the movie, but <laughs> there's a there's a scene at the very beginning where they escape, and it's the woman kind of taking this small little skiff sailboat through the reef, through the swell, and landing on the island. It's an incredible stunt, and none of the stuntmen could do it. They weren't great enough boatsmen. And our director, who is always, he's lifelong on the water, decides to get into this boat that's 10 feet long, single sail, wood boat, and come through the reef with 10 to 20 foot waves. Like, you couldn't get away with this today. You do it in CGI. Incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Well, he puts the dress on and a wig and brought this boat through this. It's incredible. And and water over. He just gets splashed around and waves crashing on him. And he wound up making it, obviously. But he had lost his Rolex in the water, uh, in the reef, in the middle of this storm. And it was gone. And this, this all happened on week one. We're out there, I think it's our last day or second to last day, and the water in the reef goes down, and now you can walk out on the reef like a mile. Uh, and we're walking out there. It's where I swim across the, the channel against a shark. And he's looking out on the horizon, and he's just looking for his shot. And without even looking, he points. He's like, give me some sticks right here. And he points at the ground, and the... The key grip goes and he's locking off the legs to the tripod and he pulls up his watch with barnacles on it and the whole bit and there it is. Here you go. (laughs) And it's still running. They sent the picture off to Rolex. I don't know what ever happened to that, but it's quite quite an amazing story that uh, three months later... He set the sticks right on top of his watch. Wow. It's pretty, pretty miraculous. Uh, but, you know, I, I remember so much of that and working with Mila. And uh, I think the greatest experience was meeting uh, the people from the villages there. You know, it was life transforming for me coming from Hollywood with money and, you know, all that Hollywood is. And you're, we're on this island with these villagers who literally live off the land um, and live in a village. And they... They fish and they farm and they they have really no possessions except each other. And uh, I think that was kind of the greatest thing is to see the, the happiest people on the planet had really no possessions. Uh, they, they had this village and their family and their friends. And, you know, I came back from it kind of a little dissuade, just kind of bummed out with Hollywood and this whole idea of money and life and what's it about and... Mm. You know, that it's it's about living and people and friendship. And I think there was a moment there that I, I kind of wanted to run off and live in a village off the land. and But then I didn't. I like air conditioning and TV. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but it was, a, it was a nice idea for hippie Brian back in the day. <laughs> oh, just, just, just in a quick aside. Steve, mm-hmm. your mum says our show is amazing. <laughs> she just commented on Facebook. Oh my gosh, has she? Thanks, mum. Hi, mum. Hi, mum. Oh, she's going to love that shout out. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, famously, I mean, Mila Jojevic, 
apparently hates the movie. She says it's the worst thing she'd ever done, which uh, is debatable to anyone who saw Resident Evil Apocalypse. So how do you feel about it? You know, the movie is not good. Uh, I don't think a lot of people see it. Actually, Frank Price, who was the head of uh, Columbia Pictures at the time, it, it was he staked his career on it. And uh, just before the movie came out, uh, he was gone. So if that tells you anything. <laughs> um, I think seven people actually saw it in the theater. Um, it wasn't well received. And it was actually the script. It was a bit disjointed. You know, spend the first hour and a half uh, kind of explaining to the audience why we're here with these two new kids. By the time you finally get to Mila and I, it's... You know, there we are. But uh, I have to say, Mila, I've been in worse since. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is what it is. It's the Blue Lagoon. Nobody's winning any awards for it. It was a great experience, I think, for both of us. Uh, just first time in a huge movie. Um, but uh, we're coming at it from two different perspectives, I suppose. And um, You got a great you know, poster out enough. of it. Got a great poster and, you know, made some lifelong friends that live in Fiji still. And, um, you know, I'd say that's about it. (laughs) And I learned some skills, you know. Uh, If we're ever stuck on an island, you know, I'm your guy. (laughs) Well, I guess for myself, you really made a noticeable name in Mick Garris' Stephen King adaptation of Sleepwalkers. That's where you play the uh, sun creature known as Charles Brady. Uh, so was this an audition role or was this something that was already in circulation whilst Blue Lagoon was in production? It was an audition. Um, so when I got the Blue Lagoon, there was a, a three picture deal for, you know, through Sony and uh, well, through Columbia, which then became Sony as we made Sleepwalkers. Uh, but it was an audition. Um, and it's funny the the night before my final audition call back, you know, in the room with everybody and there were these cats outside my window that were screaming. I guess they're in heat and they're all like, and I'm like on the third floor, but they were outside my window and it was just very strange. Um, It was, it was eerie. And anyway, uh, yeah. So I went in and did the audition the final time there and Mick and everybody. And part of me, I guess I was on a list of people that were approved by the studio based off of, you know, whatever, I don't know. But, you know, I'm so grateful Mick had chose me. And and again, another set, I show up, I'm 22 years old, and, you know, there's Luke Skywalker, there's Ron <laughs> Perlman, there's, you know, I mean, Machen and, you know, Alice, and, you know, people who are just so talented and been working for years, and, and then me! <laughs> so, <laughs> hey, guys! <laughs> you know, uh, it's... <laughs> So fortunate that uh, that Mick took a chance on me, and and thank God. <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, meeting some big names there, and uh, Mick Garris is amongst a group of great horror directors such as Joe Dante, Clive Barker, and John Landis, but all of whom also appear in the movie with Stephen King himself in various cameos. Now, were there any of these director icons in the movie that you were just psyched to meet? It's it's a horrible story. So the in the scene that they're in is uh, this graveyard scene, um, which we it spent like almost two weeks filming it. Uh, and in between there, 
that's when they had them come in to film. And I don't have a direct scene with any of them. But the the studio had flown me to New York to do some press, I guess, for the return of the Blue Lagoon and what have you. Uh, so they blocked out a three or four days where they flew me away. They flew all of them in. They filmed. <laughs> oh, I no. come back on Sunday. I show up on Monday and it's like, is Stephen King still here? Is NNS still here? They're like, no, no, no. They did it. They're gone. I'm like, oh. <laughs> but everybody else got to meet him? Yeah. I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you did get to so, work with... Um... Otho from Beetlejuice, though. Yes. Glenn Shaddix, amazing man. Uh, you know, when you say, I, I just was with Mick. He just had a signing for a recent book that came out. Um, I guess a, a biography. And, you know, I, I see him once or twice a year. And I got to say, one of the nicest humans you'll ever meet. Uh, gracious, humble, wonderful. And then Glenn, same thing. And, you know... I wasn't even acting much before that came out. I mean, like, he's he was great and funny, and uh, how lucky was I to be able to work with, you know, some iconic people, for sure. Yeah. Also, Mick has a, a really great podcast that he hosts called Postmortem. That's right. Um, where he focuses a lot on horror movies and has a lot of uh, horror directors and stars, and it is a fantastic show. Uh, podcast he's he's amazing you know again somebody who had a goal and a dream and you know started nobody handed it to him he he did his work and you know he has a passion and an, uh, obviously su supremely artistic from being a writer director and you know he's a fan of the genre and and i think that helps and you know he he just he just never stopped believing and you know great things have happened you know, it's it's amazing. So I've just met so many people who are like, well, I direct. I'm like, well, what do you love? They're like, well, whatever comes along. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, okay. like, But, you know, a guy like Mick is like, no, this is what I love. This is what I do. And he's he's at the top of the game. I, I think if you ever wanted to make a horror or thriller to get his advice or have him produce it, direct it, I think is, you know, you guarantee a winner. Definitely. And uh, you know, in this movie... You have uh, two love interests. You have <laughs> the beautiful Machina Mick, uh, absolutely beautiful and incredibly talented actress. And then also with your mum, <laughs> the, the also beautiful <laughs> Alice Krieg. Great work if you can get it, Brian. <laughs> How is it working with these two strong female leads? Uh, again, 22. Me? Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm sure they were eye-rolling, like, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> really, Mick? Really? Uh, you know, Alice was amazing. We had a, quite a few meetings before we started and, you know, wanted to create a, um, a chemistry. And we talked about the role and who we are, what we were. You know, we're these alien cat people pretending to be humans. Uh, and so she, she really kind of took me aside and you know, helped so much in finding the role and what we were going to do with it. Um, and Machen, what can I say? She's just, uh, yes, incredibly beautiful, but incredibly talented. And again, humble and wonderful. Uh, it's amazing. One of my first jobs, and I, I don't know that you mentioned, but you may not be on my IMDb because I was cut out. Uh, I had a line on uh, the pilot of Baywatch. In oh, which right. Machen was the lead guest star of the pilot of Baywatch. And my I gave my line to Machen. 
Uh, it was like, hey, cool sweatshirt, where'd you get it? Right? And uh, I'm supposed to walk through the sand, turn around as she walks, and, you know, go on and hit your mark and say the line. Well, I couldn't hit my mark. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, never in focus, never on the screen, and I was cut out. And to think, you know, two years later, here I am starring in a movie with her was pretty incredible. Um, so I had to remind her of that. <laughs> <laughs> And she, and then she had this look on her face, like you were the guy, really? Like, <laughs> huh? And learned to hit your mark since, yeah. Huh? Interesting. <laughs> well, for a movie that's centered around cats, um, it's interesting to note that both the the leading lady and the director are allergic to them. Yes, it's so crazy. <laughs> I love cats. <laughs> It's like I mean, Steven Spielberg saying, oh, I'm directing this movie called Jaws. I can't swim, but... You know. I can't swim. I hate sharks. <laughs> the water's hooky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, you know, what do I say? We had so many cats there, and cats can be creepy, you know? It's not Cujo. <laughs> it's uh, it's a cat. Like, there, there's something to them that have this... They just always know, don't they? Those cats. Yeah. The weird thing about Sleepwalkers, it, it, they have this kind of tonal shift in the movie because it starts off as a real like dark, brooding horror, and then suddenly you're, you're stabbing a cop in the ear with a pencil and saying "cop kebab." <laughs> so, was was any of this kind of pickup, or was it reshoots due to test audiences, to, or was it always destined to have this kind of comedic tone in it? I think when I first had a discussion with Mick before we started um, his idea was uh, werewolf in London uh, yeah. which which that was kind of what we were going for it was uh, horror comedy I suppose um, you know it's got to be light this is this is where he kind of wanted me to go with the character and <laughs> obviously yeah once I start getting bloody and have this thing that it was I mean I was, it was a little big I, I think the way I did it um Again, 22. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, you went all in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're like, okay, just a little, maybe a little, okay, is that all we're going to get? All right, take it. Uh, but that was that was kind of the idea, is, is a little bit of, uh, that was the reference, Werewolf in London. Um, no, I, I can actually see that. I mean, later on, you, you've got, you know, a, a guy getting stabbed in the back with an ear of corn. Right, you got oh, Ron Perlman getting his fingers bitten off. Exactly, it's definitely got this real dark comedic tone to it, and I think that's why people like really kind of count it as this cult classic nowadays. It's funny, you know. So many people are like, "Oh my gosh, that movie scares me so much." I'm like, "You haven't watched it. Like it's, <laughs> like, it's not scary. Like, I what? Where is it scary? Like, I guess parts of it and how it's shot have this scary element, but." Uh, it's horror light. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's creepy more than terrifying. It's creepy. And me yeah. and Alice, I think my mother, and, you know, this is one my mother never saw. I, I couldn't show her that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she'd have a lot to answer for. Hey, Mom, I made it. Watch this. <laughs> yeah, you made it with your mom in this movie. <laughs> Brian, you've been naked in your first two movies. What is happening? <laughs> No. I don't know. Isn't it great? 
There's a psychiatrist somewhere who's rubbing his hands thinking of all the money he's going to make from this. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Unity and Oedipal complexes. Um, <laughs> one, <laughs> one last question before we move on. Um, were you under the final creature makeup at the end or was that another actor? I was never in the full body. Uh, so head right. to toe, that was uh, a performance actor. Um the suit's quite large and uh you know to put me in it i'd have been 10 feet tall uh the the most makeup i was in went from kind of my belt line up and over my shoulders and head uh and that's that's kind of the the most but like anything that shows more of like a full suit uh that was not me but like laying down on the couch at the end with the stomach and all that stuff that was yeah Okay, so, so now I have to ask, uh, shortly after this, uh, you show up in a, a Smokey and the Bandit prequel series of TV <laughs> movies, directed by Hal Needham himself. That's right. Uh, it was called Bandit, imaginatively, which is the name of my cat, who is currently purring around my feet at this moment. Not to, not to oh, actually man. scare that we're talking about sleepwalkers and the dangers of cats, and he walked in, <laughs> just as we were saying. So, Weird timing. I mean, you even got to share the series with the actor Christopher Atkins, who basically played your role in the original Blue Lagoon, which I'm right. sure was just coincidence. Uh, so we must know, what, what was going on here with this series? So during the 90s, uh, TV and Hollywood, they were, they were making a series of, uh, I guess, miniseries. Uh, so Columbo had done some. Uh, there were a couple different networks that were doing these three, four, two-hour movie miniseries. Um, and Bandit had gotten picked up to be one of them. Um, you know, Hal Needham, his whole history. So uh, obviously it wasn't as highbrow as Columbo. Uh, it's Bandit. <laughs> 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 so, you know, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, for me to even get to that point, uh, you know, highs and lows of a career, money in and out, not working, uh it was kind of a reset and this came along and uh you know i'd always been a fan of the bandit movies and stuntman and you know all of that and you know it was one of those like okay let's here we go all right i'm doing it and uh you know that took me down to north carolina i was there for almost eight months uh as we made the four different movies and you know i worked with uh, stan barrett who was our stunt coordinator and his two sons Stanton and David and David's gone on to executive produce Blue Bloods and both of these his kids are like incredible incredible stuntmen and athletes uh, so they took us in and taught us how to drive cars and do stunts and drive the rig and get sideways and do 360s and you know Hal was one of those guys that he wanted the actor to do the stunt yeah uh, He's the only guy I've worked with where you're in at eight, you're out at five. Like, that's how it goes. There's no 16-hour days. You're in at eight, you're out at five, and the actor needs to do it, and it makes the day quicker, and you get one take, and let's go. <laughs> um, so it was, it was an incredible experience, and it, it got me into racing. It's where I met my ex-wife, uh, and so I was into racing cars for a while and that whole thing and until I got divorced, and now I hate it. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, not really, but kind of. Uh, but they, it, it, what an experience. Hal Needham was, I mean, just one of a kind and a throwback to old Hollywood. 
through that, I got to meet, you know, Stan Barrett, who was Paul Newman's stuntman. Uh, Paul Newman had come down to the set and hung out with these guys. It was like their buddy, their racing buddy. And, you know, the, wow. the, the old stuntman of Hollywood is kind of what I got to meet on that set. And, you know, as, as lowly received as the movies were, what an experience. Uh, old Hollywood. It was, it was incredible. Uh, yeah, Christopher Atkins, who I had met a bunch. Um, you know, to have him there, it was kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> who I've gone on, on later and had a relationship with even to this day. He's played on my yeah. baseball team. And, you know, Chris, what a great guy. Just, yeah. just a who wonderful had, human. Who had the best perm? <laughs> I think Chris did. Chris has got some good hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Different era too. He came through the eighties. Like it was all about that big hair. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you appeared in a long-running TV serial, Another World, as Matthew Corey. Now, how did you feel about heading back to TV after being in feature films for so many years previously? It's tough. I, uh, you know, coming up through the eighties, you you did one or the other. You couldn't do a commercial once you once you booked a TV gig, you stopped doing commercials. Once you booked a feature film, you stopped doing TV. So once I was doing films, it was like the idea of doing any television after that meant my career was over, right? And that's obviously all changed today. Uh, but it was it was kind of nervous time. And I'll tell you, I wasn't working a lot. They weren't knocking down my door. I had personal issues from drinking and whatever. And I was kind of trying to fuck up my entire career. You know, I kind of got to this point where I had said to my agent, I said, look, we're starting over. I said, if that means I have to start from the bottom rung of doing a commercial to a one line, to a guest star, to a thing. I said, this is the, pl you know, we built this plan of how to, how to kind of get back to where we wanted to. And uh, I said, man, I'll, I'll do a soap. He's like, you will? I'm like, let's go. It's, it's all about working and proving that I can do it. And so I kind of put myself out there and this is the first one that came along and, you know, you wind up signing this five-year deal. And, you know, I kind of thought for me that, Getting this, I this is would be the rest of my career. I I was going to spend twenty years doing a soap, you know. You're you're getting this film actor to come in and do a soap, and you know I felt like I was helping them as much as they were helping me, and uh, I figured I'd be there for twenty years. I wound up being there for six months, <laughs> getting let go, and had to question my whole life all over again. So, you know, again at the time, my my son was not even a year. Um, so it was a way to get out of the restaurant, get out of the pie truck. And, uh, we moved to New York and, you know, I did six months and I quickly realized why soaps are what they are. Uh, memorizing 40 pages a night, uh, you get one take, uh, and go, and you gotta be word for word. Uh, it's very, very, very hard work. Um, so anybody that's made a career of it and your, your, your lead soap star, you know, they, they're doing 75 to 100 pages a day, word for word, memorized. Wow. And it's, it's quite incredible when it comes off really good because it's, it's, it's an impressive talent to be able to make it believable and good and entertaining. Um, so, you know, I learned from there, like, wow, these guys are, this is hard. <laughs> yeah. Just listening to that, the idea of going through about 70 pages a night, that a night. is making my headache just from the thought of it. It's incredible. 
there's you. We're really hoping that Coronation Street gig went full time. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you're glad it didn't. No. Well, I, I I averaged my character Matt was about thirty to forty pages, and the most I ever did was like sixty sixty something, and. You know, even 30 pages, 40 pages, I would stay up till midnight, one in the morning, just running it, running it, running it, running it, running it, writing it down, saying it, and then get up, catch the bus, go through New York. I was sleeping four or five hours just just to get one take and not be... <laughs> it took me a lot of work to, to do it. And, you know, then you had this guy like Tom Eplin, who was a regular on the show, and he'd go do 80 pages and he'd just memorize it in the morning. Just walk on a set and do it. I'm like, unbelievable. Yeah. And they're like, well, it's a muscle. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you kind of started to fall into the world of sci-fi with a movie I've never been able to find and I've looked for for the better part of 20 years. It was a movie called Within the Rock. Oh, yes. I don't know if it's any good, but the trailers looked really good when I first saw it. But I've never been able to find it. I, I haven't either. Um, you know, some great people in that. Robert Patrick. Uh, man. Xander Berkeley as well. Xander Berkeley. I mean, it's like, I don't know if it ever came out. It was released. It was, I don't know what happened to it. I don't think any of us have an idea what happened to it. It's one of those lost gems that's just going to show up on a distant channel one night. Yeah, it was It was kind of a uh, an independently produced aliens, if you will. It was, yeah. it was kind of, that was the movie. Um, you know, good script. Good, um, yeah, I don't know whatever happened to that. It's it's a shame. Well, with a bit of luck, it'll show up like Tammy and the T-Rex did. After about <laughs> 20 years in just a vault somewhere, it's suddenly yes. going to get sprung onto the world with a bit of luck. Someone's got it on Betamax, I know it. So. <laughs> Super 8, come on. Super 8. <laughs> I'm not that old! <laughs> Well, suddenly the world of Brian Krause explodes with your arrival as Leo Wyatt on the hit show Charmed. Cue the millions of girls screaming. Ah. Now, the role of Leo is not who you went into audition for, was it? Uh, no. No, I, I went in for Andy Trudeau, the uh, detective police officer, initially. So when I came back after Another World, moved it back across the country, you know, and again, starting over, right? Uh, construction, doing all that stuff. And, um, you know, I had been auditioning quite a bit. I had auditioned for Aaron Spelling on 90210, Melrose Place, uh, everything that he ever did and never really booked anything. And, um, you know, including Andy Trudeau. And I had heard of the show happening and I, I had known the girls, Alyssa and Holly and Shannon, kinda in the circles and friends of friends. Um, so I knew they were doing this show, but so I had auditioned once or twice and for Andy and didn't get it. And it was, it was kind of building towards this frustration for me of, you know, this is right about the time my wife said, whatever you're going to do, just do it. Right. And so here I come crawling out onto this house and I got this audition for Leo, the handyman and, just struggling to just keep the dream alive. And I walk in to this audition and they're like, okay, come back at four o'clock and for the producers. I'm like, oh my gosh, now I gotta, 
Now I got to call the guy at my construction site and tell him I'm not coming back, which means I got to tell my wife I'm not making $100 today. And I got to walk into that house and explain it to her that I didn't make money today. Like this, this better pan out. <laughs> and so then I stay there and then I wind up, all right, come back later. Aaron's coming in at six. So it's all happening in one day. And when you walked in for Aaron Spelling, he his office is 5,000 square feet. Like, it's gigantic. And he had this couch that would hold 20, 30 people. And he sat in the middle, and you sat across the office and stared at these 30 people on the couch. It's a terrifying audition room. And so here I go, and I'm, I'm like, okay, we're going in. Like, all right, I'm going to go see Aaron again, the guy that doesn't hire me. Uh, and but I, I thought in my head I'm like this is a great way to remind him that he's seen me before right like I'm gonna walk in I kind of knew what would happen and my goal was to say hello Mrs. Spelling it's great to see you again perhaps that'll ring a bell for him right so I walk in well hey man Mr. Brian Krause Mr. Spelling I'm like hello Mr. Spelling it's wonderful to see you again and he looks at my picture and he looks at my resume and he looks up at me and he goes, oh, hello, Brian. Nice to meet you. <sighs> nice to meet me. <laughs> yeah, You know, I've lost my hundred dollars. I got to go back to the construction site. My wife is going to freaking kill me. What the f- am I doing? Hollywood sucks. I hate this. I'm now I'm just incredibly pissed off. And they're like, Brian, are you ready? I'm like, yeah, I'm ready. And I'm just, I gave this read like, this, this place, Hollywood, screw it all. I don't care. I'm quitting. I don't care anymore. And I, now Leo's such a nice guy. The whole audition was like, oh, I'm sweet, right? And I read it like, I was just saying, screw you, screw this, F off. And I read it just like with spit coming out of my mouth. And they're like, okay, great. Anything else? And I I look at him, I go, anything else? That's it. Okay, great. Thank you. I waved and I just walked out. No goodbye. No thank you, Mr. Spelling. I just walked out. And they called me a half hour later and said, I got it. So... I don't get it. I've tried that again, and it didn't go over well, so I, I don't really understand how it happened. But, uh, yeah, what a mystery this industry is. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, Charmed, actually, it got renewed for its second season after only the first two episodes had aired. Uh, so were you kind of aware of this early success while you were shooting it? Uh well, I wasn't on yet, but I knew Shannon Doherty and Aaron Spelling. I mean, there's there's a long history there. Um, basically, anything Aaron does or did, excuse me, uh, was gold. It was TV gold. I mean, he, he, he didn't really shoot much pilots, TVs that didn't get picked up to series that didn't last a while. Um, so he was kind of television's guy when it came to knowing how to put it together so it wasn't surprising the show was going to go and then with Shannon and um, obviously later Alyssa and Holly and you know the idea that it was it was kind of groundbreaking TV right Uh, three female leads that you know also are into this sci-fi it was something that had never been done before and so it wasn't too surprising they had picked it up Um, it was surprising they kept bringing me back Were you aware that the original Charmed House is now Hank Pym's house in the Ant-Man movies? No. Ah, there you go. There you go. (laughs) 
Bit of, <laughs> bit of trivia for people. I bet all the Charmed fans are like, how the f*** doesn't he know that? <laughs> I wonder, did, did they actually film inside the house or was it just exterior? Um, only inside the doorway, like the, the, what do you call it, like a landing room there. There's, yeah. there's the coat room. Uh, that's about as far as we got into it. So you should have just carved your initials in there, then you would have been in like Marvel's better movie. <laughs> well, I tell you, when I'm feeling down about my career and things are a little slow, I'll drive to the house and just sit out front. And, you know, there's constantly people from all over the world showing up to take a picture in front of the charmed house. <laughs> I'm like, hey, guys, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> you're not Rupert Evans yeah exactly <laughs> or even worse you're not Paul Rudd <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're like who's this guy could you get out of the picture we're taking a picture of the house <laughs> who's that old wrinkly guy what the fuck oh, he keeps saying he's Leo uh. <laughs> apparently um a lot of onset tension between Alyssa Milano and Shannon Doherty. Did you find yourself surrounded by that? I know nothing about it. No, there we go. Is the very <laughs> diplomatic answer. <laughs> was it there? <laughs> <laughs> I was in the commissary, it's fine. Uh, I was outside you, taking pictures. You know, uh, this, this is something that I think everybody's trying to avoid in all interviews, uh, even the, even those two girls. Um, but I, I think it's something that was public knowledge. Um, you know, it's who's the star of the show, and I think you know I think the girls have a history that dates back further than the show in Hollywood, dating boys in Hollywood. I suppose um, we've know, all been she, there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it was one of those Shannons. A tough cookie, and she's freaking awesome. And but she's she's not the easiest all the time. Uh, she's she's a perfectionist, and and I think you have Alyssa, who's you know kind of a softy and nice and sweet and wants everything to be perfect. And you know I think personality wise, it was they're very it's opposite. It's yeah. a clash just just based off of who they are, and then. You know, I think there was a fight. Who was the star of the show? And, you know, not to be cliche, but I will be. It was, who's the boss? And um, we all know who won that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's too bad because I love Shannon and and I have so much respect for her as a human and, and her work ethic. I mean, she works hard and she shows up and she does it and she knows what goes on on a set and... She just, you know, I, I think when she left the show, I think we all wondered how much longer the show had uh, because she was kind of the patriarch of the show. She was the show. And the the show changed when she left and we brought Rose in. And, and I think we just got a lighter, the show became lighter. It just became a little more fun and not as kick-assy uh, as it was with Shannon and um, it just, I think we have two different shows, the first three years with her and then, you know, er, the remaining five with, uh, Alyssa and Rose. I, I think the show became more fun, uh, it, lighter, different. Well, it's a very, very diplomatic answer. 
I mean, you, what, you, are you trying to no. get me? No, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I, you know, I have the utmost respect for all of them. Honestly, it's like, you know, in this industry, it's very hard to get work, male or female. Um, you know, to get work as a woman and be a star of a show, it it historically has been very difficult. And yeah, you know, for true. all of these three women to not only be the stars but be the headline to to headline a show it's a very difficult place to get to and they did it and they didn't do it just because they got lucky they did it because they're all great at what they do so i learned a lot on having ambition and work ethic from every one of them and um there there was you look you spend eight years on any set with anybody uh there's going to be really tough days where you hate each other. And our set was not immune to that, for sure. But then, you know, next day you come in and it's a love fest. So, it's, it was... <laughs> I showed up, I did my lines, and I walked out. Like, do not get involved. <laughs> well, it seems that you lost out on having an action figure made with the other key cast members is this right no i have uh i have there's an action figure of leo oh is that yeah oh. you don't how have co- it how collectible no uh, it's, uh, it's, so they, it's suddenly missing from all of my toys wow well they have <laughs> oh interesting they have, i guess they did two or three different runs uh but i'm definitely in one of the runs there's there's action leo and that was i mean it? i my mom, yes, my mother was a doll collector and, uh, you know, literally a huge wall in her bedroom of dolls dating back to the beginning of the 20th century and 19th century and all the way up to, you know, she had Steve Austin, the $6 million man and, you know, every presidential doll and the first lady dolls and every acting character you could ever imagine. So when I got my, it's not a doll, it's an action character, mm-hmm. action figure. <laughs> It's not a doll. I had to keep telling my mom that, but you know, to, to give her that and have her put it in her collection was probably That's one cool. of life's, you know, finest moments for me. Like, there you go, mom. I did it. Well, I mean, the the show's hugely successful. It's got one of the most loyal fan bases going. Uh, but by the eighth season, there was a lot of cuts that were being made. Uh, they say it's down to budget. Uh, your role was cut back uh, quite mm-hmm. a lot. Uh, a lot of on-location filming was cut, and Dorian Gregory was cut out of it completely. Right. So how did all of this come to yourself? Uh, it was quite a shock, actually. Um, I had just signed a wonderful contract for the last season. Renegotiating every year, was I was always dead. <laughs> so it was like, <laughs> okay, I'll take what you give me. And I finally signed this great contract, and I'm super happy and... Uh, it was literally the week before we started. I had gone to one of the executives brought me to like a Dodger game and put us up in the you know the suite to kind of say thank you to the the guys of the CW. And they they wined us and dined us and said, "Oh, Brian, thank you for being there and putting up with the girls and the show and we can't thank you enough for everything you've done for so many years and this is awesome." blah 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 blah. The next day, I get a call from my agent. Hey, listen, they're not picking up your contract. They only want to give you 10 episodes of the final season. Oh, dear. Excuse me? (laughs) They want to spread 10 episodes out over the whole season. So they want me for the whole year, but not in every episode. 
I was a little pissed off. Um, but at the same time, I was like, look, I'll do 10 episodes. First half of the season, I get the second half off. And they agreed to it. And then I came back and did the final two episodes of the show. Um, listen, for me, I mean, I'll, I'll be really candid. Uh, when I got divorced in 2001, which we were in season two or three, um, my son moved across the country. And, you know, I, I let my wife go and get remarried and do the whole thing. And I, I hit a point of just super depression. And my son being the only blood I know in my life, and he was my boy. And, and to have him move across the country, I was incredibly, incredibly depressed and, and began to self-medicate. And I was drinking every single day just trying to, to till I passed out. And uh, I was depressed. And... That behavior didn't change all the way through, and I, th I think it started to show up on camera. I gained weight. Um, I'd show up late. I always knew my lines and whatever, but I don't think I was bringing the same performance as I was the first couple years. I think I got wrinkly. I think, you know, I wasn't the cute little Leo that I started as, and I think for the show, as they were moving on, it was like, uh, look, he's not... <laughs> he's not spelling beautiful anymore. <laughs> like, you know, and, and they kind of made that transition with me. And honestly, I don't blame them. Uh, but it was, you know, I spent 15 years of just self-medicating, depressing, trying to kill myself. And uh, finally, I'm on the good side of it. Here I am almost four years sober. It's fantastic. But uh, it took me a long time and I didn't want to be on the show. I didn't care to be there. I didn't want to be around the girls. It was very difficult for me. Um, I was depressed every single day, uh, and yet here I am living this dream. So it was kind of a weird place to be. So actually when they said, you're out of here, I was as pissed as I was. Uh, it was, you know, I wanted it to be on my terms and not on their terms. So I think that's what I was pissed off about. But, um, you know, it was kind of a relief as well. It took a lot of the pressure off, and I was able to kind of, you know, go be a dad a little bit more. So it was, it was a weird spot. As much as I had been asking for it for years to not be there, when they finally said, okay, don't be here, I'm like, what? <laughs> you jerks! Um, so I, I really think that's what happened. You know, I, I, pu I pushed it. I was, I was a catalyst in part of that happening. Uh, so whether it was budget cuts and you bring in Kaylee and, um, you know, obviously Dorian was out as well and locations and thus and you know I, I think they were making room for where they wanted to take the future of television wherever they saw it going and uh, I think they had made a statement that I wasn't a part of that I get it were you ever offered to come back for the reboot I was not uh, and I know it's because the girls have kind of bashed it publicly um, you know at Twitter I guess you know I, I don't think Leo goes back without Piper um, you know, yeah. the, so it's, you know, I don't, I don't think they come and get me before they get one of the sisters. Um, it's possible I could show up obviously, but, um, you know, I, I feel like they've created this new show and they've s separated themselves from all of us. Uh, even Alyssa and Rose and Holly and, you know, all of them. So, <laughs> you know, I think they just wanted something brand new and something that stands on its own and they've done it. Uh, but not to say that I wouldn't go back. Um, I, I really love playing Leo as far as the role constantly being the voice of do the right thing and good things happen. 
you know, that's one thing I did like is is he's inherently a great person with morals. Um, even though I didn't always have them myself. <laughs> yeah. Well, on, on a more personal note, I want to say congratulations on the four years being sober. Uh, thank yes. you. I, I know it's not easy. I went through my entire 20s self-destructing in the same way, in kind of the same situations as yourself as well. So congratulations, and we are so thank glad you. that you are on the other end of it. I appreciate that. It's, it's, uh, it's where the good good part of life happens it's it's been amazing and to hear you know other people have gone through it and you know i i think so many people do and don't ever really find a way and um yeah it's it's uh there's you know happiness is a choice and it's it's you got to work for it and uh i'm definitely a happier person since so it's it's fantastic thank you we're glad otherwise this show would have been a downer (laughs) (laughs) okay that's your 20 minute interview (laughs) (laughs) well well after uh 154 episodes of charmed which is amazing uh you've always remained one of the most popular figures on the show also and and how has the fandom been to you away from uh, Leonie Lee, who is probably never going to forgive me for tagging you in her comment the other day, <laughs> Mr. Oh, Fine Wine. <laughs> <laughs> in case you don't know about this, Steve, because you're not on social media. I'm not on social media, no. no. That was, that was my break yeah. for my mental so, health. So Smart I, I mentioned that um, Brian was coming onto the show, and a friend of mine, Leonie, uh, posted, oh... When you talk to him, tell him that he's aged like a fine wine. So I went, okay, and I tagged Brian. Brian, Leone says you've aged like a fine wine. And she she sent me a message saying, I think I just have to go and kill myself. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, she's a big fan of yours, so give her a bit of a shout out. Oh, uh, Leone, thanks. It's, it's, uh, I'm so, thank you for saying that. These, these wrinkles were earned. So, <laughs> much appreciated you know and i'm an actor so there's so much self-doubt you wonder if the wrinkles sometimes you think oh it's over i'm not pretty anymore i'm a monster <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's uh thank you i'm blushing and it's uh, you know i'm fortunate to s- still keep going you know and the, the fans the chart fans have been amazing i think going to these comic cons has been life-changing you know i show up and i see i've heard so many stories from people of why they watch charmed and what it meant to them um you know the greater good they were different their life was hard they're you know they sat next to their mother as they went through this horrible illness and watching this show helped them get through this hard part of their life and leo you're the angel and i love you and oh you meant this and this and man i who would have ever imagined that nobody says that about, you know, Richard in the blue lagoon. <laughs> there might be one person out there. There might be one. <laughs> Your pecs got me through a hard time. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Christopher. Is it, is it you? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's amazing to think our show just resonated with so many people that, that feel different, that feel marginalized, that feel like, their life is a struggle and kudos to the girls and Aaron and to all the writers and you know to be a part of that 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 has helped people survive a a horrible family incident or whatever it might be uh 
it's I I don't even know how to describe it. It's uh, I feel blessed that I'm on this side of it that people feel like I I help give them something. And I listen. I grew up watching a ton of TV and movies. I think as all of us. And I I gotta say I I wasn't gonna go up to Lee Majors and say, man, <laughs> you helped me, bro. <laughs> like I you know, am I going up to Hasselhoff and going, dude, Night Rider? Listen, I was stuck in my room for years, depressed that Jeff Kemp was going to kick my ass, and you helped me. One man could make a difference. Yeah. Oh, man, you and Kit, like, wow, you saved me. Like, you know, I don't know that I ever had that response. And, you know, when I have people be honest about it like that, it's it makes me kind of tear up a little bit, that knowing as an actor that we have kind of that power, right? Yeah. Well, over the last decade, you've not exactly been resting on your laurels. You've continued to act in a large variety of projects, including TV series such as Dark Rising and Turn Back Time. Uh, You've also delved into one of my favourite areas, the video game voiceover. Uh, Voicing games such as L.A. Noir and Fallout 76, and many others have the tones of Mr. Brian Krause. So tell us about your foray. Are you yourself a gamer? I am a gamer. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I play a lot of Battlefield. That seems to be my thing. Um, I haven't tried any of the Fortnite or whatever. So, yeah, I'm the single-person shooter army games. And that and Mario Kart. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, but I do love games. Um, you know, it's funny. My son who's in his 20s and sees me at home with my Xbox. He's like, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, roll reversal. <laughs> Dad, yeah. go and tidy your room before you play that game. <laughs> yeah. What? what make, make me a grilled cheese. <laughs> yeah. Dad, I'm trying to study. <laughs> uh, go in the other room. I don't want to put the headset on. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's I mean I yeah, it's funny. <laughs> yeah. There there is one thing that I did actually notice. Brian Bloom, who was in Bandit. Yes. Uh was also one of the head writers and uh, also appeared in Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. So I know that's not Battlefront or Battlefield. Got to get make sure you don't get those two mixed up. But yeah. it's a nice little thing knowing that you like first person shooters and it's like your buddy from Bandit is their front and center. Yeah, he's he's gone on to do some. So I, I didn't see him much after we did that. I, obviously, I had a kid and the whole bit, but uh, I think he did he executive produce and write uh, the A Team as well. Yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, so he's been out there killing it. And hello, Brian. It's Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I, I want I want to cover a little specialist area of my own now. So uh, I had to do some of these direct-to-DVD sci-fi movies that you've been doing. Uh, now, now no matter what anyone says, <laughs> these are classics, such as Loch Ness Terror, Camel Spiders, which, uh-huh. <laughs> which is awesome, Warbirds, mm-hmm. Salford Women. Oh, wait, that one was banned. <laughs> what? Yeah. We're going to get letters from the people from Salford. We really are. If, if, if I can get sued by the entire city of Salford, I have achieved something in my life. 
So, I was like, I'm not in that. What is that? <laughs> That's, that's what anyone says when you actually ask them if they're from Salford. I, so, I wasn't in the movie Pirates either. <laughs> well, despite what anyone says, I mean, these are the most fun you can actually watch on late night TV or the sci-fi channel. And I reckon movies like this, they've got to have some fantastic behind the scenes production stories. Again, being four years sober, it's, you know, I've made some mistakes and you, you wind up doing movies like this when you need money and you need to work. And that's kind of how they came about initially. And I got to say, it's the most fun movie making ever. <laughs> you know, you don't want to make a career of them, obviously, but man, it is fun. It's like, okay, up there, there's a gigantic spider. I'm like, like, like how gigantic? Like gigantic. Okay. All right. Now it's make believe like nothing else. You know, it's like, oh my God, run. You know, dig it, dig it, dig it, dig it. You're shooting it. It's like, it's, you feel like a kid for sure making some of these. Uh, and, you know, listen, low budget sci fi, there's a huge audience for it. And, you know, some, you try to do campy, you try to do, what you can it's obviously like sharknado just one of many and it just happened to take off but you know finding myself doing them it's it's like oh man another creature <laughs> like <laughs> I, I think i've dealt with the Loch Ness monster twice like <laughs> <laughs> i a funny story in one of them i'm i'm supposed to be running across his field i i found old nessie has laid eggs and there's a, a whole cavern of eggs that are the size of a car. And I'm supposed to be running with one of these eggs like I'm going to kill it. And uh, I'm literally running across this field with this styrofoam gooey egg. <laughs> Goo everywhere. There's like, a, I mean, this thing is gigantic. And I'm, I gotta go. And I kind of get over to this guy, uh... Niall and I'm like Matter who is in it with me and I'm I, and I'm like Niall we got to make this we got to have fun here right and we kind of do this little smirk thing and whatever kind of making fun of ourselves and letting the audience know that we're in on it and the director was having none of it <laughs> and he's like Brian he goes I need you to be serious here like this is a serious serious moment in the script and I'm like. I'm running across a field with a gigantic dinosaur egg with goop all over me. How serious are we? Like, <laughs> like this isn't Jurassic Park, bro. Like, <laughs> you see the hat? You see the gun? Like, <laughs> I mean, I get it. Take it serious. You want everybody to fall in like I'm doing this. But I'm like, come on, man. we got to have a little fun, right? Like... I got a gigantic egg in my arms. <laughs> uh, I haven't worked for him since either. <laughs> I, I've got to say, I mean, I am, I am such a fan of the movie Warbirds. Right? Oh. Which, as soon as I saw, I saw it on the late night sci-fi channel, I think it was, or it might have been Bravo, and it was just on, and I, it just started watching it, and I was like, for some reason, I can't turn this off. Oh, there's Brian Krause. Oh, Carl, oh, this, no. is, this is going to be good. I know Brian Cross is in it. And, oh, there's Jamie Mann. And Jamie Mann, you know, she's she's very striking. Good yeah. actress as well. And it's like, okay, they're, they're in a World War II bomber. 
and they're facing pterodactyls. <laughs> this is going to be good. And <laughs> I've got to admit, I, I found so much fun from that movie. It was one of the best nights oh. I stayed up and watched a movie that just came on. That's fantastic. Again, <laughs> we found eggs in a cave. Or, well, the Japanese did. <laughs> There's a reoccurring theme here, isn't there? Yeah. Brian Krause is the Easter bunny of... of uh... Listen, if you need old dinosaurs brought out from the dead, you hire Brian Krause. Right? He's, he's your go-to finder. Yes. You know, Forget that Chris Pratt guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Krause. Who cares what he's uh, doing these days? Yeah. It's funny, I'm, I'm remain really good friends with Toru Masamune, who, who played the, I guess, the colonel, the Japanese colonel of that movie and we we do kind of every once in a while we bring it up <laughs> our whole relationship and that movie wow. you know I, lo- I just love at the end where I died I'm going down and I got to do that final scene you know where I'm like no <laughs> and I ride the bomb down you know it's kind of like a <laughs> Slim Pickens moment, yeah. It was my Slim Pickens moment, exactly. (laughs) I'm saying it's one of those movies that people should just hunt down and watch. It should be a cult classic like Shadow. Oh, man. You know, it's we all sign up to be actors and hope that we're Laurence Olivier, and we don't get to choose our roles, right? We roles pick us, and as work comes along, it comes along. And I guess you can work your way into a genre or a a type you know by making choices but you know i i'm one of those actors like okay do i have time to do it am i available let's do it there's not much i turn down i just love working so if you got a dinosaur egg movie call me up maybe i'm free uh you know does it stop me from doing more dramatic stuff and i guess serious work uh, potentially which is kind of funny i guess our industry's a little snobby like that right you can't be in an oscar movie if you've hunted dinosaur eggs but um and and i don't know that it's ability as much as you know our industry kind of puts everybody in a hierarchy of what they think they're capable of doing and to be honest i wouldn't say that because you look at the case of robert foster right robert foster was a major actor in the 70s serious actor he did um oh god i've forgotten the the major movie that he was in the title of it has just slipped out of my head but he basically ended up venturing into direct-to-DVD movies and stuff like that in the early part of the 90s. And then it turns out Tarantino, who's a big fan of any kind yeah. of movie. Right. And suddenly he was like, I'm bringing you back and bringing Pam Greer back. And they were basically doing really small direct-to-video roles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Robert Foster <laughs> did stuff like Alligator and, um, and movies nice. like that, which were the early days of all of these type of movies that turned out. And there's uh, some actors that I know who have actually gone on, they started out doing these type of movies and actually have progressed upwards. You know, mm-hmm. and it's, it's all work and it's what you do with it, isn't it? Yeah. It, it really is. And it's, uh, you know, I think even beyond that, it's, it's believing what you're capable of, right? Not, not taking your resume on your shoulders with you into the room. Being the actor new in the day. Like, hey, I'm, you know, I have the, just believing in yourself. I think that's the big part of it. I, I think for a certain period for me, I was like, oh, I did the Loch Ness. That's all I am. It's over. And it's very hard to gain, keep your confidence level up when, when you've done some things that you feel 
aren't up to whatever. Um, at least I've struggled with that. Um, and it's, it's obviously being sober, it's much easier to, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I'm not going down depression lane anymore, but that's amazing. Cause I, I, Robert Forrest was, what a phenomenal actor he was. Oh yeah. It just, ugh, so good. Yeah. And, and there's so many more like that. I mean, I, I was a big fan of, um, the director video scene in the eighties and nineties. So I would just watch absolutely everything. And as soon as we got satellite TV and it had a dedicated movie channel, I was watching everything that used to be on. So I knew a lot of the actors that started out. I mean, Viggo Mortensen started out on uh, a friend of mine directed a movie called American Yakuza, which was basically a, a you know, it was a Japanese gun movie uh, made in the US for probably about two, three million. And his career shot straight up. Sure. And he had um, Michael Nuri who was a big star in stuff like a movie did called The Hidden, a couple of those in the 80s, you know, and, and he's went down that way and he went back up as well. It, it's just uh, the, the complete hills and valleys. We've had it from some of the guests that we've had on who, you know, have been up there and then came yeah. down again and then came back up again. It really is. And, you know, I think Hollywood loves redemption. They love it if you come back. I mean, look, Robert Downey Jr., he went from prison to so. 70 million, yeah. you know, yeah. it's... It's amazing if if you get your life together and believe in it, and it's it's never over, and uh, you know there's not a lot of things where you can say that. You know you don't say that to the a sports athlete. You know five years out, like well you can make a comeback. <laughs> You're 53. <laughs> it's possible. Like <laughs> I think the other reason why it really works as well is because there are always going to be people coming into the industry new directors, especially they've grown up watching movies throughout the 80s 90s and they're going to be directing their first movies and they remember all of these actors true and to these people they're a name you know so a lot of maybe executives and you know studio people they look at it a lot differently of like well who's this person this is why tarantino was fantastic at pulling all of this talent back that had been written off by it's, studios it's true he does it he seems to do it in all of his movies as well it's funny i just finished a, a little prison movie and it's great. I love it. And it's, yeah, I was the producer, the director. They're like, man, you're Leo. <laughs> like, <laughs> every day, you know, I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm prison guy now. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm like no, man, but he's a thing. And he, yeah. I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, wow. I'll, I'll sign that for your mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for your mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, you're currently doing the TV series Cypher, where you're playing the character of Robert, which is all about FBI crypto analysis, and that's playing on Roku now. How's all that going? You know, it went well. We we made a independently produced, uh, I guess, eight episodes. Um, so for a show like that, you know, it's it's a very low budget to make an action show. And Majdi Smiri, who wrote it, directed it, uh, he's brilliant. And for no money, he made a great show. Uh, so we'll see. I, I, I know we're all hoping to get a second season out of it with a real budget so we can kind of blow it open. Not I'm, I haven't been following it. I'm not sure how well it's been received or how it's doing around the world. Uh, I, actually, I was talking to somebody the other day, one of the actresses in it, Eve Morrow, and she's like, apparently they're telling me it's great in India. I'm like, oh, there you go. <laughs> we we found our audience. <laughs> 
I it is on my list now to try and track it down and watch it because I did see the trailer and it looked fantastic. The scripts that we had were great. Um, I don't know what's missing from it except maybe more a bigger budget, you know, more action. You know, it's it's a show and a premise that has a lot of promise. And I, I think what they put out is is we're hoping to get a second season to really give the audience something that's a little more enthralling. Right now, that's you know eight episodes and try and fall in love with these characters that are there and and see if we can make something out of it. Uh, but for me to play you know this hard nosed FBI agent hunting down the world powers, it was it was something I don't often get approached to play. So it was it, it was fun to kind of dive into that and. Uh, be that guy for a minute you know good guy bad guy we're not sure so that was fun i i would love to get a chance to do that with a you know obviously even a halfway bigger budget (laughs) uh we it was a grind that one i tell you it was a grind well what i say is uh never mind it having a second season steve i think that's a show that should have a nominate five now's the time to nominate five Nominate five, or three, or four, or six, or nine. Now's the time to nominate five. And if he was worried about the content of the show before, now he definitely is. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Oh, the joys. Uh, the joys. It was, a, it was a decent enough segue. Yeah, it, it, I'd, I'd, give it, I'd give it about six out of ten. So, so, Steve, explain what Nominate 5 is. Okay, well, Nominate 5 is the part of the show where we invite our guests, if we have one, to nominate five things that they particularly like about either their work or the industry in general. It varies from guest to guest. And uh, this week, we have asked Brian Krauss to nominate his five, and he's kind of already touched on this one. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. So, seeing as though Brian uh, loves his comic cons, so we wanted Indeed. to touch on him to nominate his five favourite meetings of uh, other celebrities, other actors, other talents at a Comic-Con event. Are you ready, Brian? Yes, I thought you were going to ask me about my five favorite dinosaurs I've worked with. But this is, that's fine. This is bad. Hey, they're my older favorite actors. eggs you've rescued. Yes. Yeah. They're older actors. Let's not call them that. <laughs> oh! <laughs> okay, then. so starting at number five, Brian, who have you got for us? Billy Boyd. Ah, Pippin. For- from Lord of the Rings, uh, probably one of the nicest, fun people I met. I met him down in Australia when when Sean Aston was down there and hung out with. Had a chance to hang out for a minute, and he just had wonderful energy and a great human. And he is also there at Telford. Uh, he is at Telford, so it'll be nice to see him a, a, again. Uh, cool. I gotta say, L- Lou Ferrigno. Oh yeah, Big Lou. Big Lou, because I mean, I grew up on the Hulk, right? Yeah, uh, and he was it. Uh, and I have a funny story for him because I, one of my very first acting jobs, I did a background. I was an extra on on a Lou Ferrigno movie in 1988. I didn't get paid. <laughs> they treated us like dirt. We didn't even get to eat. And it was like a really horrible experience. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like right? being an extra, yeah. Yeah, and so when I finally, I would see Lou at some of these different cons and I was like, man, this this is going to be a great icebreaker. 
And I'm like, Lou, hey, but man, great meeting you. And he's a great guy. And I was like, Lou, okay, so 1988, I did this movie and I was extra. And he looks at it, he's like, which one was it? I've been in a hundred movies. <laughs> the one where you weren't green. I'm like, I don't know, Lou. I am no. I'm not sure this one made it out. <laughs> yeah. It was in the 99 that didn't get released that year. <laughs> so, okay, then. Who's number three? Uh, number three. Um, I didn't get a chance to spend much time, and I, I think I mentioned him earlier, but Mads Mikkelsen, uh, I have to say I was most impressed with probably one of the largest stars I've seen at a con besides Goldblum and a couple others who I didn't really meet, but uh, Mads went out of his way to introduce himself to everybody, and uh, he was just so humble and generous, and I mean, he said, he, t he spoke to everyone, and you know, I'm a big fan of his work, just to see how genuine he was as a person, I was, I was quite impressed. Okay, number two. I hate to say it, but, I, well, the guy that just recently went to space, <laughs> Shatner. Uh, Shatner, come on! I, again, I grew up with um, uh, I never felt the ability to share any sort of Star Trek story with him, but I gotta say, I, I think just you know, as a kind of a little feather in my cap, like, hey, I met Shatner. Yeah. <laughs> so did Tommy Hinckley. <laughs> oh! <laughs> on re-entry. <laughs> <laughs> But he's, you know, he strikes you when you're in the room with him. And it's like, oh, that guy, oh, he knows he's the man. Like, he's just got a presence. It's, he's the captain, you know, and I, yeah. I think he believes it and he lives it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a walking legend. <laughs> well, all right, then. Who is the number one most awesome person that you've met at a convention? <laughs> well, you know, I, I pause at mentioning girls because the ones i would mention are single and i'm like hey maybe they're at the next show and that's creepy that's just creepy okay but are there, i have a list <laughs> the, the next five <laughs> uh, um, uh, i have to say one of the greatest human beings i've met and i met him at a show and i've been fortunate to spend you know a few cons with him uh is is matt ryan He's freaking awesome. He, he's actually from, I guess, Wales, Cardiff, and uh, great actor, great human being. Uh, he's probably one of the coolest dudes out there. Um, and again, humble, nice, uh, you know, and he plays the devil. He, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah. So that is a great list. That is yeah. great. By, by the way, uh, Tommy Hinckley, funny enough, messaged me and said that um, <laughs> you and his wife, Tracy, worked on a pilot that was written by Dominic Dunn. Uh, the rich family oh, consisted yeah. of Barry Bostick, Michelle Phillips, Tracy, Stephen Caffrey, and you. Wow, that was man, that's a while ago. That's amazing. Yeah, and he <laughs> says, uh, "Can't remember if you had any scenes together, but you both did Earth Angel." What? I know. Wow. That's how small Hollywood is. So, uh, wow. Tommy Hinckley says to say hi and hope you're doing well. Uh, we got to bring you two back best. on together. That'd be a yeah. hilarious show. Oh God! <laughs> yeah, I I tell you, there's a great story too. I'm, you know, you're behind the scenes in the base camp, and there's Eric Estrada walking, and you know they have the police guys that are watching traffic, and they're they're usually motorcycle cops. Mm -hmm. And I I capture the moment that nobody's ever seen, and it was Eric Estrada walking, 
nobody's around, leaving base camp. And I just watch him and he's kind of looking at the bike and you can see him and he just takes this moment and he's just staring at the bike. Like just, I don't know where he went in his head, but <laughs> it was like, it was it just like this really slow-mo of him like remembering. Like, <laughs> I was like, wow, I caught, I got it. <laughs> it's like, oh man, if I could get a picture of that, it would have been worth something, but. Uh, I, w- I was wow. hoping that story was going to be he suddenly jumped on the bike and then had a police chase, OJ style, oh, all no. the way through L.A. <laughs> it, it, was, it was nice catching him in that private moment of reminiscing. No, that that is pretty cool. I, I think after this show, I think even more people are going to fall in love with Leo from Charm. Oh, without um, doubt, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think j- just having you on here today uh, and just getting to know you, I've got to know you over the last couple of weeks. Absolutely amazing guy. And uh, you deserve all of the success that will come to you. I'm hoping that we're going to work together at some point in the future. Uh, too. That would be fantastic. Well, I'd love to just meet you guys in person as well. And I appreciate you having me on and being interested at all. So It has been a fantastic episode. It really has. Talking to you has just been absolutely phenomenal. You're a funny guy. You're a talented guy. You've got a ton of great stories. It's wonderful. Thank you. And- what have you got coming up? Have you got anything that's due to be released soon? Let's uh, see. I, I think there's a, a Lifetime love story movie that's coming out. Is it you and the egg? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I didn't do it! You know, it's the egg is the egg is in search of who cracked it. Yeah. And of course, I'm the male in the Lifetime movie, so I'm the yes. bad guy. I cracked it. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, I did, I did a horror movie over the summer for a friend of mine who wrote and directed her own horror movie, which is fantastic. I play this kind of meth head, kind of scared southern redneck, uh, and that'll probably come out next. Yeah, it'll be a few months. Uh, then I did a movie called Basement over the pandemic, where five people, well, five six neighbors are stuck during basically World War Three has begun, and I'm the only one with a basement. Um, that everybody can dive into in New York and we bring in all our neighbors and it's my African-American neighbor. It's my Mexican neighbor. It's uh, my super Trump supporting gun toting neighbor from upstairs. It's uh, my Middle Eastern neighbor who runs a shop and all five of us, six of us get in there and it's, it's this how we culturally put blame and judgments on each other. And we kind of learn how to, you know, we're all in this together, people. And that uh, sounds really cool. How, yeah. how do we get out? And you know, it's kind of really a state of affairs of where America's kind of been the last couple of years. So, where can people see Basement? So it's it's getting ready to come out now, and I guess they're they're trying to sell it. Uh, there's a, the trailers up on Instagram, uh, the Basement, the movie, and we'll see. I, so I guess they're they're trying to sell it now and we'll see where that gets to but it's 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 a great look at humans you know it's a it's a character piece you know we're all in a basement just talking and it's it's uh it's nice uh there's some really great actors in it and then me (laughs) (laughs) this this seems to have a theme in my career like just put them with some really good people (laughs) uh and then I just finished a prison break movie uh, with Louis Mandalore, <laughs> and I'm <clears throat> kind of the mastermind of breaking out of this prison, and he's the man set on stopping me. 
it's a fun little action movie. Um, we just we just wrapped up actually last weekend, so I imagine the next six eight months it'll be somewhere to watch, uh, and it's that'll that'll be fun. I, I I haven't haven't played that role yet where I break out of prison and kind of play the uh, the evil mastermind, if you will, the supervillain. And I kind of I tell I tell you I I took a little after uh, Romy Malek and what he did in this latest Bond. Uh, and how he played that, I was kind of impressed on him playing an, an evil doer, and uh, so I, I might have stolen a couple of things from him. Right, it's cool. That that's a, a hell of a lot of stuff to look at. See, you, you've got more to promote than some of the guests that we have on. Yeah, <laughs> just like this winter next thing. Oh, yeah. So, don't take anything away from yourself, Brian. You've got an oh, amazing you. career that is keeping going, and we we just cannot wait to see it grow even further and further. So you've got to keep us in the loop of anything that is getting released of yours so yes. we can promote it for you oh thank you i know i'm so horrible at social media and putting it out there and I, i'm probably one of the worst self-promoters i think like you said it's like taking a break from social media for my personal wellness is uh you know it's it's a tough place to navigate and i, yeah. I think to anybody and all the listeners out there it's you know we can so easily get caught up in social media and believing it as a reality and you know sometimes you got to put it down and actually just go outside or talk to friends and do the thing because you know I know for me I'd get caught up on it and I would start judging myself against other people based off of a picture that they've edited 50 times you know like oh I'm not ripped oh you know oh they're <laughs> yeah. at that place I'm not there I'm at home oh you know like, <laughs> you, know, like <laughs> you, know, I, you know I think we got to be very careful with with that and how we allow it into our lives but i'm, I'm going to try and make a push to get back out there and you know have a healthy push of interaction with social media so we'll see i'm old <laughs> <laughs> yep well you're not in a box yet <laughs> that's Ooh. true and speaking of which what's in the box what's in the box what's in the box What's in the box? I was so waiting for that segue to come in. Oh, yeah. Absolutely nailed it. <laughs> Thank you. Explain explain what, what's in the box is while I do it. Okay, then. What's in the box is the part of the show where Andy tries to improve my movie education and get me away from my Xbox where I spent actually quite little time these days. Um, and he tries to get me into more highbrow, more critically acclaimed cinematic fare. And so to do that, he's going to put his hand into a box and pull out the name of a movie which he certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, if I have seen it, then he keeps pulling out names out of a box until we find one that I haven't seen, and then I have to go away and watch it the night before we record our next episode. So, Andrew, yes, what do you have for me? Uh, I've pulled out the uh, Tom McCarthy movie The Visitor. From 2007, would you believe, that actually stars Richard Jenkins. And it's a movie where Richard Jenkins, he plays a college professor. He travels to New York. He's attending a conference and he finds uh, two young immigrants living in his apartment. And uh, that's all I'm going to tell you. You've got to watch the movie and review it. Right. Okay, The Visitor. Well, I've, I've never even heard of that one, let alone seen it. So, Talk yeah, there we go. Okay. Well, it's been an amazing show, Brian. Uh, absolutely amazing guest. You are welcome back anytime you feel like you just want to come and hang out on the show and have some fun. 
Yeah. It's been great just having a laugh. It has. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm smiling for sure. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it, my cheeks are hurting. Now I'm going to go get more chocolate. Yes. <laughs> that, that should power you enough to live through this dismal, shitty English climate so until you escape oh, and go and meet up with Mark Rolston and have some fun. That's funny. <laughs> but uh, That's awesome. thank you very much uh, for taking the time to come on. It has been a real pleasure. And uh, we look forward to the response from all of your legions of fans as well as the people who are, are yet to discover you. And we yes. look forward to your career just skyrocketing. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Bless you both. Well, I, I guess that's everything now, so it just remains for, to say a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me also. Take care, everybody. Take care. Cats actually scratched my hand as well. Sleepwalkers! <laughs>